0: This is Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is the New Hampshire News Recap. Let's get into this week's top headlines. The state primary is approaching. A U.S. Senate seat and two congressional district seats are on the ballot. The state has appointed election monitors to oversee the primaries in Bedford, Wyndham, and Laconia Ward 6, after the attorney general investigated how those towns ran elections back in 2020. We'll talk about that and more with NHPR's senior political reporter, Josh Rogers, and New Hampshire Bulletin's Amanda Gokey. Good morning to you both.
1: Good morning.
2: Good morning.
0: Let's uh, talk about uh, the primary here, Josh. Democrat Andy Custer has represented New Hampshire's second congressional district for the past decade. The top three Republican candidates competing for their party's nomination in the primary really vary on ideology. Josh, can you tell us more about who is running?
1: Sure. Uh, We'll start with Bob Burns. He's run for this seat before, back in 2018, and he's quite conservative. He's very much running in Trump mode, uh, populist, uh, pro-life, pro-gun, America first. Uh, Bob Burns has been around politics in New Hampshire for a long time. He's now in his 40s and he really grew up as an activist. And so he knows Republican primary voters, but he's also uh, lost most of the races he's run for. So he's something of a journeyman. Then you have George Hansel, who's the mayor of Keene. He's positioning himself as more of a moderate he's pro-choice he's been endorsed by governor Sununu and uh, then there's Lily Tang Williams and she's a Republican of a real libertarian stripe she actually ran for US Senate in Colorado as a libertarian and you know polling shows this primary is is wide open and that few voters have uh, really made up their minds here as much as a uh, Close to two thirds of voters have yet to make up their minds, according to a St. Anselm poll. So it's going to be interesting to see who Republicans choose to take on Annie Custer, who, as you said, has been in for five terms and has been durable. But ever since she defeated Charlie Bass to, to get into this seat, she's faced pretty conservative Republican nominees. And so it'll be interesting to see who Republicans Uh, put up this time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And as voters start to pay much more attention as we get towards the end of the summer here, uh, I know you've been following the top five Republican candidates vying to take on uh, Maggie Hassan, Democrat incumbent Maggie Hassan, for her Senate seat. There's Chuck Morris, Don Bolduc, Bruce Fenton, uh, Vikram Mancharami, I'm sorry, I'm getting that wrong, Um, and and Kevin Smith. What were the top issues that have come up so far in in that particular race?
1: Well, I mean, this race has—there have certainly been issues. I mean, they all they all are trying to focus on the economy, all the Republicans are, and and changes they might make to what they consider sort of a bloated agenda of the Biden administration and, and Maggie Hassan being complicit in all of that. But it's—you know, out on the campaign trail, it's been less about issues and, and more about— uh, temperament and leadership style and and one thing that's been interesting to me is the apparent durability of don bulduk uh you know he did serve 10 tours of duty in afghanistan so he's definitely durable um you know he ran in 2020 uh lost in the primary and he really basically kept on running he's never had much money he's clearly connecting with primary voters he's led every poll and we watching the debate this week that newsmax hosted at st Anselm college it was interesting to see uh, the other candidates more or less leave him alone. And, you know, as in the congressional races, relatively few voters seem locked in. But, you know, based on my own observations, I will say that Bolduck's backers seem very loyal. And that's been in the face of criticism of Bolduck from Governor Sununu, who last week said he couldn't endorse Bolduck because, in Sununu's estimation, he's not a quote, serious candidate mm-hmm. and a sort of conspiracy theorist type is the language the governor used. And, um, You know, this is going to be interesting in the next few weeks.
0: All right. We'll be interviewing the candidates in that Senate primary next week, by the way, here on Morning Edition. So you can stay tuned for that. Amanda, I want to turn to you. You reported this week that the state has appointed election monitors to oversee the primaries in Bedford, Wyndham and Laconia's Ward 6. The attorney general investigated these towns following the 2020 election. Can you tell us more about what the state found in those towns?
2: Sure. So in both Wyndham and Bedford, the secretary of state has said that the problems there really stemmed from the high number of absentee ballots that those towns had to process. So if you remember back to the 2020 election, the pandemic was really still in pretty much full swing, and so many more people voted by absentee ballot compared to what we've seen in a typical year in New Hampshire. Usually, it's around ten percent of voters voting by absentee ballot, um, and in twenty twenty, that went up to like thirty percent. So obviously, that's a lot more ballots that those towns are than they're what those towns are used to processing. In Wyndham, what happened is uh, election officials tried using a, a folding machine to help process those ballots before putting it through the AccuVote machine, um, but that folding machine actually creased, put a crease through um, ovals, shading those ovals and leading to extra votes for certain candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, in Bedford, a tray of ballots was placed in the wrong in the wrong location instead of that tray going to the to be counted table, it went to the already counted table. And so those ballots were never counted. Mm -hmm. Um, In Laconia, there were two problems and neither of them had to do with absentee ballots. One was that ballots were put in the side compartment of a ballot collection box and never taken out to be counted and 179 ballots were misplaced in that way. And the the moderator also, didn't count write-in ballots correctly those ballots are diverted from the voting machine um, so write-in candidates can be counted but instead the moderator counted all of the votes cast on those ballots and that led to a lot of double counting.
0: And it's important to note here that in each of these situations there was no evidence of foul play or fraud. Um, Secretary of State Dave Scanlon has stated many times in the past year that New Hampshire's elections are secure so how will those election monitors work with these town officials during the state primary?
2: Yeah, so two basic functions that they're going to be serving. On the one hand, they're going to be interacting and sort of serving an educational role. Um, They'll be also observing those elections and making reports. If anything um, does occur during those elections, they'll be submitting those those reports to the state within 30 days of of those elections.
0: This is Morning Edition here on NHPR. We're recapping this week's news with New Hampshire Bulletin's Amanda Gokey and NHPR's Josh Rogers. Now, this week, the state's ballot law commission rejected an effort to disqualify members of the New Hampshire House from the ballot in the 2022 election. Josh, I want to talk about this story for a minute. Who filed this request and why?
1: A woman named Karen Steele, who lives in Atkinson, filed this request. Um, And her rationale was that in supporting... Uh, a bill that would have put the question of whether or not New Hampshire should consider seceding from the union on the ballot, that the the, the lawmakers who sponsored that bill or who uh, voted against its defeat, it was overwhelmingly defeated in the New Hampshire House, um, you know, had essentially violated the U.S. Constitution and therefore should be disqualified from um, serving in any sort of public office. Uh, this is a line of logic that has been raised in, in reference to the January 6th hearings uh, about the storming of the Capitol, and they were raised before the New Hampshire's ballot law commission. And uh, this is what Karen Steele uh, told the commission.
2: The seven sponsors of the bill for a plan for New Hampshire to secede from the United States and the additional seven representatives who voted to not kill the secession bill have violated sections one and three. Of the Fourteenth Amendment of the United States Constitution, and should not be allowed to hold public office at the federal or state level.
0: Joshua, any of these lawmakers who were targeted present at the hearing? Did did they defend themselves?
1: Well, most of them skipped it. They thought this was without grounds. And I will say that that you know, Mrs. Steele had a very sweeping notion of the charge of the ballot law commission. One that uh, a lot of the ballot law commissioners, you know, said they weren't comfortable. Ruling on such a thing, essentially. But, you know, one, one, one of the lawmakers targeted on the complaint um, did testify, Matthew uh, Santamesteso of Ringe, and he basically said that this thing was groundless.
0: I believe that a talk about secession is completely legal under the Constitution and it's um, compatible with so there was uh, that hearing earlier this week. Now, the Ballot Law Commission voted that unanimously that these lawmakers should be able to run free election. Uh, Amanda, you also reported on this meeting. What was what was their reasoning for that?
2: Well, so as Josh has already mentioned, the, the Member Commission basically said they didn't think it was within their jurisdiction to make the call on this issue. Um as, as Josh had mentioned, Karen Steele um, really argued that voting in favor of secession would violate the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. But members of- We're having a little problem here with-
0: Amanda, we're having a little problem with your, your connection here. You're going in and out a little bit. Uh, I want to, one more time, see if I can still get you back there. Um, go ahead. What was your reasoning there?
2: Oh, sure. Sorry about that. Um, so essentially, as, as Josh had mentioned- no, members of the ballot law commission said they didn't think it was within their jurisdiction to to make calls. They said they're really charged with interpreting state laws and, and regulation uh, as opposed to federal laws.
0: OK, we've got that there. Thank you for that, Amanda. I do want to point out before we move on here, you had a great series in the New Hampshire Bulletin recently about it, about an effort to restore the lost art of seed saving in the state. Uh, Amanda, um, assuming we can keep your connection here, what is what is the practice of seed saving?
2: Yeah, so seed saving is basically when gardeners or farmers harvest the seeds plant and save them to replant the following year. This can look different than the kind of plant people are working with. For for some like beans, it's as simple as just letting them dry on the stock before harvesting them and storing them during the winter. Things like tomatoes are a little bit more involved. So you slice open a ripe tomato and leave it at room temperature for a few days. There's a sort of mold that forms and then the seeds are washed and rinsed and left to dry.
0: It's a very interesting series. I, I want to ask you, why are folks trying to bring seed saving back? Who are the groups that, that are doing this?
2: Yeah, so there's a grassroots group called the Moose Mountain Seed Savers. They started working on this during the pandemic. Everyone was obviously at home and a lot of people turning to their gardens. Some of these gardeners realized that there was actually a shortage of seeds. They were having trouble getting a hold of them. And so that spurred them to start thinking about saving seeds so that they could be independent from from seed companies and sort of do this on their own. And by doing so, they realized they could make them also available to others for free. So gardening and and food would be more accessible. Um, So they're working to start seed on the state where people can check out seeds for free.
0: Now I know you also write about how some Abenaki leaders are working with staff at the Strawberry Mag Museum to, to educate the public about Abenaki contributions to, to agriculture and indigenous seeds. Can you tell us a little bit more about that before we go?
2: Yeah so this effort sort of pushes people to, to think about some misconceptions that they might have about indigenous people in the state. But primarily, that you know, indigenous people weren't involved with with agriculture; that they were always moving around, and that they didn't sort of have a. This... Um, places that they would return to so people Abenaki people here were growing a, a variety of crops and many continue to such as corn squash and beans as well as lesser known crops like Jerusalem artichoke and ground cherries um Ann Jenison is an Abenaki storyteller and historian she spoke with me about how important agriculture was in terms of allowing Abenaki culture to flourish because of the stability that it, it provided she said this effort is also a way of just reminding people that Abenaki are still here They've, always been here um, in spite of the sort of difficult history and uh, violence in the region, including wars and having land taken away.
0: And we really encourage listeners to check uh, Amanda's series on seed saving. You can find those stories. And in fact, here, uh, read all of her work at NewHampshireBulletin.com. Amanda Goki thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And NHPR's Josh Rogers. Thanks for joining us this morning, Josh. Good to be with you, Rick. And we're here next Friday with more top headlines. I'm Rick Ganley. This is NHPR.